Open your Bibles, if you would, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. Continuing our study in Mark's Gospel. I would add that I hope as we do this, you will, as we noted last week, continue to be in prayer for events uh, transpiring in the Middle East. Uh, the biblical injunction to pray for Jerusalem stands. We need to pray for peace uh, for all those, all those who live in that region, Lord, but especially for Jerusalem, praying for the people of Israel and their neighbors. Pray for peace and those who seek peace, that God would bless them, right? Um, again, looking ahead to the next couple of weeks, we've got a lot of stuff going on, and so we really encourage you to be that. Uh, we're going to get some good, solid representation of some of the ministries we support. Um, I do want to remind you, though, that even though we're really moving aggressively in that direction, um, as far as your financial support, um, don't forget the church needs your financial support as well. I was really blessed by the offering that came in last week for Beatisham. Really encouraging. Uh, but please be mindful that the body of Christ here uh, is also dependent upon your support for our function. So, enough said about that. To the gospel. Our text this morning um, is one that always, how many read ahead and know what we're going to be talking about this morning? Ah, oh, a few of you faithful, the rest of you are in for a surprise. Um, Mark chapter 10 begins with uh, a topic that always causes a lot of angst within the body of Christ. There is... Um, there's the desire to always be, not just the desire, but the need to always be very faithful to the teachings of Scripture. And yet, this is a case where sometimes the way we present the teachings of Scripture, not Scripture itself, but the way we present it, seems to be other than compassion, seems to be other than ministry to heart and need. And then you mix in the pull of culture. It's a, it's a subject where culture has an awful lot to say, and we have to be conscious of that and yet at the same time aware that that is not what determines our, our course of action, our teaching. So there's a lot of moving parts emotively in this subject. Um, we're talking about a time when Jesus addressed the question of divorce and remarriage. Now your angst level is up. Now your emotions are, you know, touched and you're keyed in. So we're talking about Jesus' teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage. And, and here's the point I want you to get right off the bat before we even get to the text. Um, this is one of the subjects, in fact, this may be the preeminent example of a subject that unless we put the effort in to get into the mind of the first century here, those to whom Jesus is speaking, unless we make the effort to get into their thinking, see the world as they saw it, there's absolutely zero chance of understanding what Jesus says. We will completely misunderstand the teaching of Scripture if we don't make the effort to get into the thinking of the first century audience that Jesus was speaking to. And you'll see exactly what I mean when we get into the discussion of the text. So, Mark chapter 10, beginning in the first verse. And rising up, he, that is Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea, Beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We know that in it is life. And yet, Father, we're a culture where an issue like this touches the lives of so many, Father. Many times there's hurt, there's confusion, there's questions, Lord. We want to be found, Father, faithful to your word. And we know, Father, that when we are found faithful to your word, there always is life. There always is the character of Jesus revealed to us and within us. And that's our goal this morning. Jesus' name, amen, amen. So how do we do that? How do we honor the teachings of Scripture? How do we follow the teachings of Jesus? While at the same time recognizing the realities of the fallen human condition, fallen humanity, and in all of this, see Jesus. How do we do that? Well, what we're going to do first is look really carefully at the, um, at the situation in which Jesus is speaking. Try to get the mindset, furniture of the brain, if you will, of those to whom Jesus is speaking. And then we can look at what the text says, and finally we can ask those questions. What does this tell us about Jesus, and what does it mean for us? First, the cultural setting, getting our heads where their heads were when Jesus spoke to them. Um, it's really, really hard, because this is a huge cultural gap. Um, Consider, if you will, he's talking about divorce, considering, if you will, what, how we visualize that in our, in our Western American 21st century mindset. What are the, um, the basic component parts? And it's going to be a gross simplification, and I realize that every divorce is completely unique. Uh, but what are the basic components, right? I would summarize it this, you have a, you have a relationship between two people that's broken. Right? That's kind of a common factor, divorces, relationship that's broken. And then you have the legal part, where the lawyers get involved, and there's courts that get involved, and there's a lot of paperwork, and then there's a legal decision. That's the second part. And then the third part is people, and it's normally more than just two. People try to rebuild their lives after the first and the second part. That's my... My view, I mean, if I have to simplify it, that's my view of what divorce is in our culture. Um, it's, I know it's, it's oversimplification, but it, and if it gives any offense, I apologize. Um, if, if that's even close to what your view of divorce is, in order to understand this passage of Scripture, you have to take all of that and just wipe it away. All of it. Just start from scratch. Total blank slate, right? Just does not apply in the situation into which Christ is speaking. Even our English word divorce really doesn't describe what he's talking about. You know, Webster's defines divorce as the act or the instance of legally dissolving a marriage. In our Western thinking, it all hones in on that legal process where where are these two people in the legal process? What is the legal process saying? What's the result of the... We define it in a very legal way, which is very typical of Western thinking, right? 
The emphasis is on the legality. Well, let's try to get to how the disciples would have been thinking when the Pharisees raised that issue. Now, we're going to get to that in the text, but first, I want to get ourselves into the head of the disciples. Their worldview, the disciples, was conditioned by two things. The first, of course, was the Word of God, specifically the law, and then the world around them, life as it actually happened, and that's true of all of us, right? As believers, we're focused on the Word of God, and yet we encounter life every day and both of those things speak to. We kind of feel torn between those two things. Well, for the disciples, the predominant defining text of this subject would have been Deuteronomy 24. In fact, that's the basis of the question that the Pharisees are raising with Jesus, the Deuteronomy 24. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And again, we're trying to get into the heads of the first century believers. And why is that so important? Well, because that's to whom Jesus is speaking. And he's conditioning his remarks. Anytime you're speaking to people, you take into, into you know, consideration how they think, how they understand things. You want to use terms that speak to them. So this is the mindset of the first century person. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And then he goes on to discuss... In, in the law, this hypothetical situation. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter man husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to wife, then her former husband, who has sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she's been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance." The key words I want you to get in this passage as we try to understand the thinking of the first century disciples. The first word, and it's one that kind of slips by us if we're not careful, and it slips by us because we tend to incorporate this word in our traditional Western, especially formal marriage ceremony. And I don't know about any of you guys, you know, husbands who went through a traditional marriage. When they got to this word, if something inside of you didn't go, that's kind of a weird word to put here, right? And that's that word, the third, ver the third word in verse, in verse 1, rather, when a man takes, fourth word, when a man takes a wife. Now, seriously, how many of you guys, don't raise your hand. How many of you guys, when you were getting married, and the, and, and the guy in the front said, do you take this woman? Kind of went, nah, not exactly. <laughs> she is here voluntarily, Right? Here's where I say this. That particular word, take, is an extremely common word in the Old Testament, right? It occurs just shy of a thousand times. Now, full disclosure, I did not look up all 1,000 occurrences, okay? Didn't do it, right? But I looked up enough to notice some patterns, right? When this word is used, at least in the patterns that I established and in all the other you know, the research that I did, there's not a single word where this case, rather, there's not a single case where this word is used and the person or the thing or the whatever that was taken had any say in it at all. It's a one-way street, right? Same word that you would use, for example, or that the Old Testament used, for example, when slaves were taken. You know how that works. You know, the guy walks up and says, would you like to be my slave? You know, that's done at sword point, 
You are my slave. There's, it, it's a one-way thing, right? No voluntary, that's it. It is, a, it is a violent, if you will, willful, total control taking, right? That does not describe our thinking about marriage. At least it shouldn't. I hope it doesn't. But that does describe the mindset of the early believers. Now, you may think, where did they come up with a ridiculous idea like that? Right? Genesis chapter 4. Now, remember, Genesis chapter 2 is what Jesus refers to in the passage when he's correcting their mindset about, in the beginning, man shall leave his father and mother. We'll talk about that passage in a little more, little more length, right? But in Genesis chapter 4, there's this really disgusting character by the name of Lamech. Lamech was like great, 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 I'm not sure the number of greats to put in there, grandson of, of Adam through Cain. That's your first hint, right? Not a good guy. And um, Cain, it's, it says this of him in Genesis chapter 4, that he took two wives, two things in that verse. That's the first time the word take is used in reference to a marriage. He took, and then also he's the first to take more than one. Right? So Lamech introduces first the idea that wives were something to be taken, and because there's something to be taken, i.e. a possession, why not get more than one? Right? If the wife's just a possession, a thing to be possessed, why not take two? Right? So Lamech, descendant of Cain, is the guy that introduces this idea that wives were to be taken and they were possessions, therefore a multiplicity was okay. This is just give you an idea of the guy's character. This is Genesis 4, 23-24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilha, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. So he killed two people for just hitting him. He was a murderer. He was a murderous, evil man. And he's the one that introduces this idea that the wife was something to be taken. Wives, women rather, were property to be possessed. Now, I've got to remind you at this point, Scripture in saying this isn't saying it's right. It's saying it happened. It's the same as scriptural teaching about slavery. The Bible says a lot about slavery. It never says it's right. But it speaks into a situation where that is happening. And, you know, an analogy might be if you were to like take an advanced first aid course and in the manual you read how to take somebody that just got knifed, how to take care of them, you know, they've got a knife stuck in them. And so you take the course and there's an instructor that says, this is how you help somebody that just got knifed. That doesn't make the author of the textbook responsible for the fact they got knifed. It doesn't make the instructor responsible for the fact the person got knifed. No, that is the, the, a person being knifed, having a knife stuck in him. That's a byproduct of our fallen world. But there's instruction as to how you should respond. And that's what Scripture's saying here. It's not endorsing what Lamech did. It's observing that's what he did. And that's how we get into the condition that we're in. So in antiquity, and this is not just in Israel by any means, but fairly universally, the husband was seen as possessing the wife as an object. And um, if he doesn't like her, according to Deuteronomy 24, all he has to do is two things. Put into her hands this certificate of divorce. And the terminology actually means a letter of cutting. A letter of cutting, right? 
a certificate of divorce, and then he may send her out of the house. All it actually took for a divorce in antiquity, and this is not just unique to Israel, but it certainly was true of Israel, all it took for an official, formal, finalized, complete divorce were two words by the husband. Get out. Mid-sentence. Lady's saying something. Husband says, get out. That's it. Divorce is done. She leaves the house immediately. She does not collect her possessions. She certainly does not collect and take with her children unless the husband wants her to. Does not take extra clothes. She simply walks out the same door she came in and finds herself alone in the world. Now, one of the extraordinary things about this passage, I don't want to dwell on this, just note on it, is that the giving her the certificate of divorce, I mean, that sounds pretty coarse to us, right? Like, all the guy has to do is write a lousy letter, and that's his only responsibility. That was actually a tremendous step forward in consideration of the woman. Because if she doesn't have that, remember, all he has to do is say, get out, boom, she's out the door. She's left not only without possessions, without assets, without children, without anything but the clothes on her back, she's also left without status. Now just, you know, draw the scenario in your mind. Woman's married to a man. He says, there's the door, use it. When she steps out that door, she has no status, has nowhere to go. She only has two, op only has two options for employment or for, for income, begging and prostitution. So she thinks in her mind about a guy she used to know, really great guy, knew when she was young. He's not married. Maybe he'd take me in. So she goes to this guy's house, knocks on his door, boom, boom, boom. He opens the door, and he says, oh, man, I know I'd see you sooner or later. That guy you married is a total bum. I knew this was going to happen. She says, can you take me into your house? Can he? No. What if he does? She tells him, he told me to get out. He divorced me. I'm on my own. He takes her into his house. The next day, former husband shows up. I never said those things. Why is my wife in your house? He's now guilty of adultery, which carries what kind of penalty? Death penalty. So as, as concerned as he might be, as compassionate as he might be, as much as he may like her, he doesn't dare bring her across the threshold of his house. She has no status that allows her to move forward. So the writ of divorce, the letter of cutting, was actually, as, as horrible as it sounds, to her benefit in this context. It's so hard for us to grasp the brutality of this context, but that's what it was. She has no rights, no standings. Just the two words, get out. All right? All of this is rooted in the idea the woman was property, and that goes right back to that Genesis 4 passage, right? Now, this predominant worldview, which of course is rooted in sin, there's nothing godly about it, rooted in sin, persists all the way from the Deuteronomy passage, which, let's just take it in general terms, probably written sometime around 1000 B.C., is still the predominant view in Israel when Christ lived and walked and taught. And in fact, it is still the predominant view in most of the world today. 
There were three areas of discussion. See, the whole thing with the Deuteronomy passage, given our Western, or rather our human proclivity to, you know, show me, Lord, what exactly I have to do to get what I want, right? It's like the rich young guy that came to Jesus and said, I've done all this really good stuff. What's the one more thing I have to do to get eternal life? Give me the list. I can check off the list. When the men of Israel read Deuteronomy 24, their question was what? Well, go back to Deuteronomy 24. Uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds no favor in his eye because he's found some indecency in her. First question a man is going to ask is what? Exactly what do you mean by some indecency? What do I have to catch her doing in order to justify my sending her out the door? Now, in one sense... That was tremendously in the woman's advantage because for the first time, she had some measure of recourse. She can say, you want me to leave? Tell me what I did. And it better be good. Right? So that institutes this whole discussion of what transgression, what about the woman the man might find to justify sending her out the door. And there were three principal schools of thought, right? Some of you are familiar with some of these names. Um, in this, in, this is written in the Mishnah tract Gittim, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but that's my best. Uh, the school of Shemei, famous Hebrew, famous rabbi, he said there had to be something promiscuous in the woman's behavior, i.e. adultery. Although some of his students simply said if the husband suspected promiscuity, that was good enough. That was, one, that was one school of thought. The other school of thought was anything. Anything that displeased him, as much as burning his dinner, right? Most of you know I'm a big fan of Fiddler on the Roof. I love that movie. I still say you can understand more of the Old Testament by watching Fiddler on the Roof than like a three-hour graduate course, right? It's an amazing movie. Well, there's a little snippet in that movie. The next time you watch it, if you haven't watched it, you absolutely need to. There's a little snippet in that movie, and I'm not even sure why they do it, but they zero in inside the synagogue, and the rabbi is sitting around the table with his students. This is the question they're discussing, exactly what has to happen. And he's actually quoting from the rabbi Hayul. He said, if she but burns his dinner, that was sufficient cause. Right? And then there was a third school of thought represented by a later writer, uh, Rabbi Akiva, that said any reason whatsoever, including, and this is important, according to Rabbi Akiva, including he simply finds somebody else he wants instead. That was sufficient reason to justify the divorce. Again, all of that's rooted in the idea that the woman is property. Right? Okay? He finds something he wants better. That's justification, right? So for centuries, even up to this day, this question is still discussed and discussed and discussed. And the end result of the discussion is, in the words of the Greek storyteller Aesop, when all has been said and done, much more has been said than has been done. No resolution. No resolution at all, right? So now let's look at our text. We've got an idea of how incredibly messed up the viewpoint of the first century disciples were. They saw women as property to be possessed and to be disposed of as any other possession. It's gross. But that was their worldview. 
And that's the worldview Jesus is speaking into. So verse 1, rising up, uh, he went from there to the region of Judea. Remember, he's left the north. And beyond the Jordan, crowds gathered around him again. He began, according to his customs, to teach them. And some Pharisees come up to him, testing him. It's not an honest question. They're not asking, what does Jesus really think about this? No, they want to know which one of the rabbis to you know, stick him into, right? Haleo, Shemael, Kiva hasn't written anything yet, right? So they test him and begin to question him whether it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Notice the word lawful. What are they doing? They're using that legal paradigm. They're using a legal lens to discuss divorce because, after all, we're talking about property, right? It's pathetic. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? He's not going to get drawn into that argument. Jesus will not get drawn into that argument, right? What did Moses command you? And they answered, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's not exactly correct. Uh, if you read this in the, in the King James, in the American Standard, or in the Darby translation, you'll find that Moses didn't say, you know, if you want to do this, you can. No. Moses said, if you're going to do it, this is how you have to do it. Which is why in Jesus' response, he uses the word command. They said permit. He said command. He said, um, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, the two become one flesh. Consequently, they're no longer two flesh, but one. What is he doing? He's taking the discussion from Genesis 4, the Lamech character, and moving it back to Genesis 2 which is the formula God follows, because it's his formula. He saw Adam. He said it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make an ezer for him. The Hebrew word ezer means a helper. It always describes someone of equal status or even a superior, but never an inferior and never an object to be possessed. Jesus takes them back to the Genesis 2 passage and reminds them that the place of, of, of the wife is one of Ezer, right? Going on in the text, they go into the house. The disciples ask the question. Um, in verse 10, they're not understanding this, right? Interesting part that Luke or the Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew contains that, that Mark leaves out, is when Jesus says to him, the thing about if you divorce your wife and marry somebody else, you just committed adultery, Matthew contains the actual response of the disciples. They said, this is mind-boggling, they said, well, if that's the case, read it in Matthew's Gospel, it's better not to get married. What are they saying? When confronted with the reality that your wife is not a piece of property, you do not possess her, you cannot treat her like a piece of property, you have to treat her like an easer, like your equal, they said, in that case, we're not getting married. It was un This is how powerful culture is. This is how powerful a, a cultural view, if it's a predominant cultural view, can be. In their mind, the idea, as men, of living with wives who they would have to treat as equal partners was literally unthinkable. There's no way on this earth I'm getting into a relationship like that. Because in their minds, they saw, again, wives as things to be possessed in a relationship which was completely defined legally as owner and property. 
And Jesus is reintroducing a whole new paradigm that not only identifies the wife as not someone to be possessed, but as a person in a relationship of equals. It totally changes the paradigm. Totally changes the lens. From a legal lens to a relational lens, which is what Genesis 2 is. Genesis, define, Genesis 2 defines the marriage relationally, and there's no legal component to it. The Genesis 2 passage has no legal component. It's exclusively relational, and it's relational between equals. Jesus took the discussion back to the original plan. And then he adds something. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus responds to the question of the Pharisees and to the question of his disciples with a full affirmation of the Old Testament teaching of human relationship. He actually adds two things to the discussion. And this is where we can start to see what the text tells us about Jesus himself. He adds two things to the discussion. When the, when the Pharisee said, didn't Moses give us you know, permission to send her out by giving her a letter of divorce, a letter of cutting? Didn't Moses say that? In verse 5, Jesus said, well, that was because of the hardness of your heart. Because of the hardness of your heart, God gave you this commandment. Moses gave you this commandment. Think about this for just a moment. How did he know that? Now, whenever I have a chance to engage in someone in any kind of a theological discussion or we're discussing Scripture and we're talking about a verse of Scripture and they say, well, that's because. This is here because. I always say, how do you know? Were you like there when it was written? Were you involved in the discussion? Now, sometimes the text tells us why things are written, but usually it doesn't. So when Jesus says, this commandment Moses gave you because of the hardness of your heart, what's he affirming? He's saying, listen, guys, I know why that's there, because the Father and I discussed it before he wrote it. You know, we had a little chat, the best way to handle it. He was claiming that he was there, that he has firsthand knowledge of why the Father put in the commandments. He's affirming his deity. He's affirming his preexistence, right? And then, of course, later when he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We hear that so often, we assume it's in the old. It's not. Jesus added that. He's claiming the right as divinity to add to the text. Rather than thinking about under what grounds you guys can separate this relationship, just take God's perspective for a moment. What God has created in this communal relationship, do not be so foolish as to separate. The disciples see everything post-fall, the fall of man. Genesis 4 is normative. Jesus points them back to Genesis 2. What we've seen in the cultural setting and what we've seen in Jesus' response to the cultural setting is that we have to move our thinking because, you know, where is our thinking? We're pretty much aligned with the disciples. Maybe not to the point that we see other human beings as property. We, we, we're disgusted by that idea. But we're, we're right alongside the disciples in the sense that we want to define the relationship legally. So what do we end up with in the church? When someone is divorced, we end up with this like legal list. Okay, under what circumstances was the divorce okay? 
And under what circumstances is the divorce not okay? And if that person wants to remarry, under what specific set of circumstances can they remarry and still be considered a part of the body? We just, we're going right back to a legal model with its specifications and its restrictions and its legal definitions rather than understanding the relational model. Seeing marriage as Christ intended it, as God intended it, as relational, right? Here's the conclusion of the matter. The conclusion of the matter is simply this, that God's plan and design for man and woman in marriage is an exclusive relationship, one flesh. We are biologically, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually designed for that and for that alone. When the church doesn't follow that plan, or when anyone doesn't follow that plan, the inevitable result is brokenness. Without asking any question of fault or responsibility, without asking exactly what went wrong, when that plan is not followed, the result is brokenness. The problem is that all too often in the church, we have looked at, at a divorced person as failed. Put them in a category. They're a divorced person. They're a failed person. Rather than as a wounded person, because that is what they are, wounded all too often in the church, we look at a divorced person as guilty rather than broken, hurt, in pain. We define them by their failure or what we deem as a failure. They become a different category of Christian. I think when we ask the question that how should we in the church respond to people who have had a divorce in their lives, um, a really good place to start is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You ever think about that relative to the question of divorce, the Good Samaritan? You know, the story, the guy is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he falls in among thieves, and they beat him up, and they steal his stuff, and they leave him in a ditch. Religious types walk right by. But the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, he sees him, goes over to him, helps him out, cleans him up, dresses his wounds, takes him to the inn, pays for his room and board, tells the innkeeper, you, you keep him, you take care of him, when I come back, I'll square accounts with you. Marvelous story. We always talk about what the Good Samaritan did. Maybe we should talk about what the Good Samaritan didn't do. Now think about this for a minute. The only way that story makes any sense is if in the story of the Good Samaritan, the guy who left Jerusalem going down to Jericho was traveling by himself. You idiot. What kind of moron travels from Jerusalem down to Jericho by himself? And let me guess, you probably had your good clothes on, right? So that any thief in the area would know that you had money, right? He could have gone down the whole litany of how did you find yourself in this situation. Doesn't do any of that. None of that. Didn't even touch it. Zero concern simply cares for him as someone that is wounded. I think the church would do well to follow that model in any number of cases. What we learn about Jesus here is he doesn't allow himself to be drawn in debates or discussions that don't move us toward the Father. This entire discussion of under which conditions is divorce allowed misses the whole point. It's legal. Jesus' concern is always relational. He stands completely sovereign over matters of faith, Right? He claims to know the reason for the command. He claims to know God's ultimate intention. As a church, it means this for us. 
And of course, this is much broader than simply the case of divorce and remarriage. I think that's just probably one of the more intense that we face. Number one, it's our place as a church to affirm and support marriage as the most fundamental gift God has given humanity aside from life itself. It's a magnificent gift. We're called as a church to do everything we can to strengthen established marriages, to encourage and as needed instruct those whose marriages are struggling, and to help those in marriages that are sincerely troubled, and to minister to those who, through divorce, are broken, including those who aren't yet legally divorced. There's a whole group of people that don't get taken care of in broken marriages that aren't working, but aren't legally divorced yet. They're still broken people. They still hurt. They still need. As individuals, our responsibility is, is first to watch over our own marriages, including those that haven't happened yet. If you're here, you're not married yet, do the stuff now to take care of your marriage then. That'll help, right? But to watch carefully over our marriages, not to expose them to the kind of things that bring the destruction. You know, it's pretty well established. Just list the kind of things that destroy marriages. Usually it's some kind of infidelity, whether it's sexual infidelity through a physical act or through pornography, or it's infidelity with a job. You know, you can be unfaithful to your marriage with your job, right? Simple neglect. There's, I mean, there's all kinds of, again, every divorce is unique, all kinds of things that draw us away. But we can be careful and watch over our marriages to protect them from those things. To honor our spouses in such a way as to encourage them and strengthen them in their walk with Christ. Here's the really cool thing about, and this goes both ways. I'm going to make a huge assumption here. I know the text doesn't say, the text says the wife is easier to the man. I'm going to make a big assumption and say the man can be an easier to his wife too. I know that's not in the text, but I think it's reasonable. Here's the... Chris is shaking his head, no? Easer, the helper, Old Testament. Eve called to be easer. Want to make sure you got... You're with me, right? I pay attention to how you guys respond to me, right? Here's the really amazing thing is that when you, identify, when you see your spouse as easer... God's gift to you to help you make you become the person God wants you to be. Anything you do to bless them ultimately blesses you. Anything we can do as spouses, cuts both ways, to help our spouse grow in the things of the Lord ultimately comes right back to us. Right? I am blessed with an incredibly godly woman who still needs a little work. But you know what? My job isn't to do that work. My job is not to point that work out to her. She knows, right? My job is simply to do whatever I can to encourage her to let the Spirit of God do that work in here, right? I can pray for her. I can be supportive of her, right? Just like she prays for her and is supportive of me. The amazing thing about the relationship is anything I do that helps my wife draw closer to God ultimately helps me. Because we're in this walk together and it draws me closer as well. And that's always the goal. That is always the goal. Societally, we face a tidal wave. Not just of, of wrong thinking, but of a foundation that is completely wrong that drives that wrong thinking. 
And, to the, and as long as we maintain ourselves that wrong foundation, we're powerless. We're going to have a really hard time responding to a culture that has a lot of wrong ideas if we're making the same baseline assumptions. We've got to go back to that model of Genesis 2. Realize what a tremendous gift we have been given in an equal partner, equally pursuing the face and character of God and not allowing anything to interfere with that. And when we encounter those in our midst for whom that relationship has been broken, rather than identifying in a way that attributes guilt or blame or shame, be agents of healing and redemption. That's our task. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. And I know there's a whole lot of material um, in what we talked about today. A lot of ground we covered, Father. But I think it's really, when we strip it all down, pretty simple, Lord. Help us to see one another, each one of us, Father, as people who have been restored from our brokenness, restored from our failings, redeemed from our shame, Lord, through the spotless blood of the sinless Lamb, Lord. And to extend that same grace and mercy that we have all so richly enjoyed, freely enjoyed, that gives us that living hope. Lord, what a promise. A living hope, Lord. A hope that lives. Father, if we can extend that to one another in every area of our walk, in every area of our relationships, I know, Father, that will become the basis by which we grow as your people. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.